I'm Julia McFarlane, co-host of the One Decision podcast. We're coming up on a significant milestone. It's our one-year anniversary of bringing you in-depth analysis of the critical decisions shaping our world. To celebrate the occasion, co-host and former head of MI6, Sir Richard Dearlove, and myself, will answer questions submitted by you, the listeners. Spies are usually pretty tight-lipped, so don't miss the chance to write in. Your question might even make it onto the podcast. For more information, head over to OneDecisionPodcast.com. You're listening to One Decision, the show that looks at the key decisions being made today that have global impact. This week, we're in New York as world leaders converge here in the city for the United Nations General Assembly. All eyes are on Moscow. President Vladimir Putin yesterday announced a partial mobilization in order to support troops after the Russian armed forces have suffered a series of major setbacks in the war against Ukraine. In a television address to the nation, he said that Russia was being threatened with nuclear blackmail by the West and was using Ukrainian soldiers as proxies to attack his country. Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu followed, saying that up to 300,000 reservists could be called up, people with relevant military training and experience. Should Ukraine be worried about a boost in Russian troops? How achievable is it to have a fighting force of 300,000 after all the Russian losses so far? Well, joining us to answer those questions, Shashank Joshi, the defence editor of The Economist, formerly of the Royal United Services Institute, and of course, Sir Richard Dearlove, my regular co-host, the former chief of MI6. Shashank, I want to start off with um, just just the lay of the land and, and what has been happening, um, uh, particularly to Putin's position before he made that announcement. A week ago, it was a summit of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization in Samarkand in Uzbekistan. And what we saw was Putin being really quite roundly humiliated on the world stage. I mean, we saw every leader who he met with kept him visibly waiting uh, ahead of their bilats. Um, and there was this crucial face-to-face meeting he had with uh, China's President Xi, which saw him being forced to go to the, the hotel where the Chinese Chinese delegation was was staying. And he seemed also obliged to acknowledge that China had expressed questions and concerns uh, over the war in Ukraine. And then he said uh, a few similar things uh, after his meeting with India. And then we actually had the Indian Prime Minister uh, Narendra Modi uh, say that uh, I know today's era is not an era of war. And I have spoken to you on the phone about this. Uh, Quite a public smackdown from Putin uh, on on many sides in that summit last week. At the same time that that was happening, Ukraine obviously conducting this lightning offensive to take back some of Russia's gains in the east, making incredible advances uh, in the Kherson and Kharkiv regions. We saw thousands of Russian soldiers deserting their positions, abandoning their equipment. Uh, Meanwhile, the Russian government described it as a strategic regrouping that uh, received a lot of mockery online. We'll scrutinize Putin's statement very shortly, but but start us off with uh, your analysis of the position that Putin has now found himself in, in advance of making that statement yesterday, uh, and the wider position of the Russian forces on the map. 
Well, Judy, you've you've summarised his geopolitical predicament better than I could with that little tour. Uh, but I would just take a step back and reflect on the meaning of his setbacks in Kharkiv in the northeast of Ukraine. It was, of course, a humiliation unto itself to lose several thousand square kilometres to have your front lines collapse. But I think the real significance is that it puts his position, his military position in Donbass, which is, of course, made up of two provinces, Luhansk province and Donetsk province, immediately to the south of Kharkiv, in in jeopardy. Uh, The loss of the town of Izium, uh, which was a rail hub, means that he can no longer attack the key towns of Slovyansk and Kramatorsk. These are two critical towns in Donetsk province, which means his offensive options to capture the entirety of Donetsk and therefore the entirety of Donbass is in some doubt. And not only that, but his existing territory, the stuff he captured at enormous cost in casualties, in in, in Russian blood, over the summer in Luhansk province. And of course, listeners who are even vaguely acquainted with the Ukraine war will be familiar with cities like Severodonetsk, which was bitterly fought over back in June. Um, uh, Those are now also at risk. Indeed, in the last few days, as we record this, uh, we have seen the Ukrainians push into a settlement in the edge of Luhansk, putting his position there uh, at risk and denying him the ability to say he controls all of Luhansk. So um, if we reflect on the reasons for that, uh, I'm sure you spent a lot of time on this show discussing Russian military deficiencies, but one of the big ones is a shortfall of manpower, a lack of men. It was a lack of men that meant when the Ukrainians attacked in the south, in Kherson province, that the Russians had to make a decision and they reinforced the southern lines with their best troops from the VDV, the Russian airborne forces. That opened up gaps in the line, which were held by militia from Donbass and by Rosgvardia, which are Russian National Guard units in Kharkiv. And Ukraine identified those weaknesses and ruthlessly exploited them. A loss of manpower has been the central Russian problem for many months. And therefore, that brings us to this announcement. The desire to mobilise 300,000 fresh men, former uh, former reservists with former military experience, and just as importantly, I should say, um, as we saw in Putin's announcement yesterday, effectively a stop-loss policy to force contract professionals to stay in the army beyond the end of their contract. That is all designed to plug the holes that caused these various issues on the battlefield. Right. And uh, Putin's, uh, Putin's decree saying that, uh, th- that that military service citizens who are in the armed forces reserve can be called up. Uh, and then that follow up with the defence minister, Sergei Shoigu, who gave a few more details that obviously sent shockwaves around the world. Up to 300,000 citizens could be called up to serve. Is that an achievable number uh, for the Russians to mobilise, firstly? It's about 1% of their overall available reserve on paper, which is 25 million or so. Uh, And to put it in perspective, every year they conscript uh, 200,000 men in part of their annual conscription drive more than once a year. So they can handle those numbers. Uh, However, there's a huge but to this. 
who is going to train these forces? They have some prior military experience, but they need refreshing. The officers and professional enlisted men that would normally do that, I are uh, to, to, to not put a too fine a point on it, are either dead, hospitalised, uh, or uh, busy doing other things on the front lines. Um, who is going to equip these new formations? Because Russia has lost huge amounts of kit. I checked this. I checked uh, uh, yesterday afternoon, and I think the figure was somewhere in the region of 1,100 proven losses, proven by images on. On social media, the true figure likely being higher than that. And this is purely tanks, uh, uh, armoured vehicles, many, many more. And who is going to officer these new units? Because as we all know, a thousand men tipped onto a railway platform is a rabble. It's not an army. It's not a battalion. You need officers, you need structure, you need leadership. So they can get the bodies. Can they get these organised in shape? I think that's the big doubt over this. Richard, that announcement and that figure of of, of three hundred thousand obviously sent shockwaves around the world, and it very quickly was the the top item on the agenda at the UN General Assembly here in New York. Part of uh, Putin's speech mentioned that this is military veterans who have prior experience. Uh, Shashank points out, actually, you know, how long is it going to take to train these people? Where are you going to identify the leadership in order to uh, to direct uh, an effective fighting force? The world was was shocked by that announcement but is this the red army of your or is this more russia's dad's army well i think one of the enduring experiences of my professional life and shashank will know what i'm talking about it's very easy to announce things it's the implementation of you know your announcements it's the implementation of your decisions which count and i think Shashank's outlined, you know, the massive problems, the massive logistical problems, the training problems, the equipment problems. I, I mean, I think that what we've discovered as a result of the war in Ukraine is that the Russian military at the moment is in a parlous state. I mean, for some reason, it's been allowed to run down. And I think um, some of the people I know, who I trust in terms of sort of understanding Russia, saying one of the huge corrupt problems is corruption at the local regional level. So if you look at the military, and you know, a lot of this material was in store, probably it wasn't properly maintained, money that was meant to be spent on the maintenance of equipment was going adrift. I mean, simple things like, you know, the tires had rotted, or, um, you know, the gearboxes hadn't been oiled, because maybe the money that was intended to do this or that, you know, had been diverted into the pockets of local officialdom. I mean, something clearly is fundamentally wrong. And I think for Russia to recover itself is going to take more than Putin sitting down mobilising 300,000 men. Uh, you know, I, I, I think one of the factors one must take into consideration, and, and Shashang's comments have sort of illustrated this, is Russia has huge and formidable strength in depth. But how do you project that strength in depth onto the battlefield as an efficient fighting unit? And, you know, what we've discovered also is that the Russian military confronting, let's say, a NATO-trained army with different equipment has come off very, very badly indeed. And they haven't yet solved that problem. And I, I, I don't see any signs of them, you know, solving it quickly. I mean, time is on the Russian side. So if they can delay the war, uh, you know, if they can spin it out, you know, maybe in a year's time, things would look more favourable for the Russian militarily. But at the moment, they look pretty disastrous.
Shashank, you point out very correctly that you know, a bunch of soldiers without the officers to lead them is a rabble. Uh, they need leaders and they need leaders who have military expertise. Um, we've seen a lot of senior generals being killed uh, on the front lines in Ukraine. Russia's main problem, it may be fair to say, is that their military strategy has been pretty lousy. But recently they have been making some logical moves. The New York Times reported uh, in the last few days that they've been blowing up some Ukrainian pontoon bridges uh, in the Inulets River, which uh, apparently supply key routes to Ukrainian positions. Now, if the Russians make smart choices, could they reverse the Ukrainian gains recently and could they move towards a secure takeover of the eastern regions? And if they do... Will they have the capacity to defend that ground in terms of their manpower, but also the supplies, the fuel, the ammo, the tech, the food uh, needed to support those, uh, those soldiers in those positions? I think the short answer, Julia, is no. Uh, we have to bound that judgment, of course. Uh, you know, let's call it the next six to eight months, uh, perhaps even the, the year ahead if I'm feeling bold. Uh, but I don't think the Russians have the offensive capacity to do that or, as you say, to hold the ground. Um, this is partly a manpower issue. You know, you can, you can get reservists, you can get these people in, but they're feeding them into the battle piecemeal to hold the line. They're not keeping them aside, forming dedicated offensive units, training them for months, uh, building them up into a strike force that can then punch through Ukrainian lines. Um, it's partly a logistical issue. The Ukrainians have been making very intelligent use of HIMARS, uh, of course, the American-supplied rocket systems to take out Russian ammunition depots, and we have seen that manifest in a fall-off in the rate of Russian artillery consumption and usage as a result of this. Um, and I think it's also a sort of ponderousness in command and control. One of the things that made the Kharkiv offensive for the Ukrainians so effective was the ability to use surprise, the ability to gather troops, particularly light troops, reconnaissance units, light, lightly rapid mobile forces, uh, um, really using deception, using guile, using uh, a, a sort of a, a, um, a secrecy and, and using them without the Russians realising. Although I can tell you some of the facts of this build-up were in the open source because I saw open source analysts tracking this build-up outside of Kharkiv for a week before it happened. So it wasn't a complete secret. It was a sort of failure to use that intelligence. For all of those reasons, I think the Russians will be on the defensive. Um, I would put a, you know, sort of 10% probability on the idea that the Russians will be able to make similar sorts of gains that the Ukrainians have made in Kharkiv in the next six months. I would be shocked if they were able to do so. I think the more realistic scenario is a collapse of the Russian flanks. We've seen a collapse of the Russian right flank in Kharkiv, and I think we could see a collapse of the Russian left flank in Kharkiv on the west bank of the Dnieper River, where Russian means of resupply are being cut off. Uh, it doesn't mean that they won't be able to make some grinding gains in Donetsk, where they've been squeezing and grinding away at Bakhmut, a city, a city in Donetsk province, but it'll come at substantial cost and it's not going to be a breakthrough. It will be a grinding attritional advance. Fascinating, fascinating. Um, a lot of the reaction yesterday latched on to 
threat uh, of nuclear retaliation and a lot of people going back to look at the wording of the nuclear decree that Putin signed a few months ago. Now, uh, something else that has happened recently is that these sham referendums have been announced in some of the breakaway provinces in eastern Ukraine. And of course, people are now asking the question, given that the, the nuclear decree links territory uh, and sovereignty with the nuclear response pretty closely. So obviously, the idea of any kind of sub-strategic or tactical nuclear weapon would be something designed to shock Ukraine and the world into submission. Shashank, what do you make of, of Putin's nuclear threat? Do you think it is a serious one? Uh, and then what do we know about Russia's nuclear program anyway? Uh, you know, what do we know about Putin's nukes? How many does he have? Well, nobody knows what Putin will do other than Putin himself. And we, of course, must preface you know all discussions with that caveat. But I will say that I think um, uh, the character of these discussions is changing. In the first month of the war, the first two months, our concern was a NATO-Russia conflagration, uh, born perhaps of, NATO, of Russian strength, of Russian breakthroughs, pushing west, uh, and Russian attacks on NATO convoys, perhaps in, in, in Europe. The discussion we're having today is very different, isn't it? It's about Russian weakness, desperation, a sense of Russian loss, and the use of nuclear weapons, not uh, uh, to sort of deter NATO intervention in the conflict, but as a coercive instrument to try and, as you put it, psychologically shock the Ukrainians into submission. Um, now, we must take it seriously, because r desperate leaders do desperate things, and it's possible that Putin perceives loss on the battlefield in Ukraine as tantamount to or as a precursor to the uh, loss of his regime and the instability of his regime. And we must remember that bond in the mind of an autocrat, which we may not be able to perceive from our vantage point of, of our nuclear doctrine and our way of looking at these things. However, I will say what's very important is that Ukraine has struck Russian territory in the course of this conflict. It struck Belgorod with helicopter attacks, with missiles. It struck Russian claimed territory in Crimea with special forces raids, with loitering munitions and so on. That hasn't provoked a dramatic escalation despite Russian threats to do so. So we must take Russian threats, in my view, seriously, but not always entirely literally, because that is, of course, the effect that Mr Putin wants to have in, our, in us. He wants to instill that fear in us and to paralyse us and to make us temper Ukrainian attacks on their own soil, which I think would be a mistake. In a, as a factual uh, coda to that, Julia, in answer to your question, the Russians, of course, have roughly similar numbers of strategic weapons that, he, that is intercontinental ballistic missiles and the like as the United States. Um, if you count um, uh, uh, deployed and non-deployed warheads, including those in reserve, we're talking well over 5,000. But if you count deployed ones, we're talking far short of that, you know, a far smaller number. But Russia, I will say, has an advantage in what we call non-strategic nuclear weapons, or what in, in, in ordinary parlance we'd call tactical nuclear weapons, of shorter range, typically of lower yield. And it's those sorts of weapons that we're discussing when we talk about Russian use in Ukraine. Potentially, for example, a demonstrative strike over the Black Sea, uh, a, a strike on Snake Island, or a, a, a low yield weapon against a military base. Those are the kinds of weapons we're talking about. And Russia has uh, is, 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 is estimated to have many thousands of those in its possession, uh, delivered by, by, by sea, by cruise missiles on land and by air as well. 
uh, a tactical strike over the Black Sea. It seems like that could be maybe the first tangible physical step of escalation and a terrifying uh, thought to consider. Richard, Shashank says uh, absolutely correctly that Putin, uh, by all accounts, is increasingly desperate. Now, you made the prediction a few months ago on our podcast that you thought that uh, Putin would be shuffled off to the sanatorium by the end of the year. Uh, let's revisit that prediction. Do you, do you still think that's going to be the case? You've got a few months left to go? Well, I think in terms of scenarios for Putin's demise, the, the pro- if this were to happen, I mean, of course, it's a guess. We don't know. But uh, there's no question, I think, that Putin has some sort of illness. Now, is it terminal? Is it serious? Um, I was actually talking to someone earlier this afternoon, and I was speculating it's Parkinson's. Well, you know, Parkinson's can last for a very long time, and you can continue to function, or it can gallop and suddenly kill you. So, you know, it's very difficult to predict. I think what I would say is, amongst Putin's inner circle, there must now be serious concern. I mean, the Russian leadership, you know, and I've dealt with them, they're intelligent, incisive, clever people. You know, we may disagree with them fundamentally at the moment, but they must realise that they have got themselves into a parlous situation by you know, their special military operation in inverted commas. It's not happened at all as they set out, you know, as they surmised. You know, it was meant to bowl over the government within a 10-day, two-week period before the West had even thought about it. Um, And, you know, they're in literally an internecine war. This is a bit like a civil war. And we all know that, you know, wars of fratricide are the most deadly. and, and, you know, uncompromising. So, in a way, uh, Putin is is heading, you know, into a dead-end street, and it's difficult for him to turn around. So we don't know what's going to happen, but, I I mean, I would suggest that there must be serious questions being asked amongst the Russian elite. Now, I'm using the term elite because I'm not saying amongst the Russian leadership, as to, you know, how they're going to get themselves out of this mess. And the Russians are, you know, it's a great nation with a great cultural tradition. They're brilliant chess players. There's all sorts of considerations that must be going on in the mind of the Russian elite in, as it were, concentric rings around the Kremlin. And there's no question that, you know, the inner ring that Putin trusts is probably pretty isolated at this point in time. So I do, you know, favour some outcome which is the result of a very, very brittle structure which cannot, because it doesn't have the mechanisms, handle political change. Brittle structures break at points of stress. And I'm not going to make a detailed prediction, but I still think that Putin has a date stamp on him. I can't read the date, but I'm prepared to make a guess. So I'm not going to completely back away from my prediction. Julia, can I add one point to that? Yes, of course, Shashank, please go ahead. 
I just want to say that on, on that, to reflect on that inner ring, there is, I think, amongst sort of a, a hope among some people that uh, 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 the inner ring will itself turn. And I do think it is worth reflecting, as, as Sir Richard says, it's very isolated, right? If you look at the people around Putin's war cabinet, who are these people? It's a group of ageing securocrats, right, it, it, who have been in their positions for, for very, very long, a very long time. You have Nikolai Patrushev, you have Alexander Bortnikov, the head of the FSB, uh, Sergei Shoigu, the defence minister. Um, what's important to remember is out of these sort of, you know, five key individuals in the inner circle, four out of five of them have a KGB background. Three of them, including Vladimir Putin himself, comes from a counterintelligence background. Um, so it really is. I, I, I share that diagnosis of brittleness and isolation. And I think there's a real concern that this group is not necessarily getting a full picture of the war. Uh, they're not necessarily getting a full unvarnished picture of their military frailties, of their casualties, of their losses and their future prospects and the military uh, perhaps like many militaries elsewhere and, and you know not a million miles from home uh, sometimes tell their political leadership they can do things and achieve things that they can't and they do conceal bad news from going up the chain I, I think that's so right. And we this is a question that we've asked on this podcast before. I would like to put it to you is given that uh, Putin's ruling clique, as you point out, most of them are former intelligence officers. A lot of them don't have a military background. How do you think the Russian armed forces and how do you think the leaders and senior figures in the military feel about the war that they are having to fight being directed by these former intelligence officers uh, who don't have have uh, the military chops that they do uh, and by all accounts are executing it pretty badly. Well, I think, first of all, we have, must remember that Soviet military leaders um, have for a long time been kept under a tight cosh by, their, uh, by the Siloviki and, and by the Securocrats. So that, that in itself is not new, of course. You know, we know uh, from right back to Soviet, you know, St Stalin's period, the grip of the NKVD and commissars in the, in the Red Army. And we know going forward that military coups have not, not necessarily been very successful in Russia. In post-Soviet Russia, they, they came a cropper. And, and that's been the case. Shoigu, Sergei Shoigu, is perhaps in a slightly different position. Position because unlike some previous Soviet or Russian defence ministers, his military service is rather limited. Uh, and we saw indeed a state, uh, an assessment from British defence intelligence a few weeks ago that said Shoigu is probably mocked among his troops for his own status in that regard. I think the more important thing here, rather than kind of military chafing at, 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 at the securocrats' leadership, is, is, is more sort of internecine warfare among the different groups. Because what you've had is a situation where the FSB, the main domestic security service that nonetheless has responsibility for the post-Soviet space, including Ukraine, has utterly botched the intelligence surrounding the invasion, utterly botched it and profoundly misled Putin in the course of this and led to a situation in which military planning was very circumscribed because they thought the state would, Ukrainian state would collapse in days. Therefore, orders were not prepared. They weren't, they weren't trickled, tri they were not sent out to troops on the front line until, in some cases, hours before the invasion. Planning Planning was subpar. And then the military messed up in its own way, in its own separate way, uh, even, even, even having had an attempt to fix the problem uh, and resetting its operations to Donbass back in back in April. Um, but what you saw is effectively each side blaming the other, the military blaming the intelligence services and the intelligence services blaming the military. And that toxic culture is one you typically get in these kind of authoritarian regimes where you have alternative sources of power pitted against each other by the leadership. Julia, can I can I add a comment on that? Because I think what Shashank is saying is important, and 
I've been of the view for a long time, and this is going back really to the Cold War, the Russian state, and actually the Soviet state, you know, shaped the same characteristics of not necessarily being good to use intelligence to form policy, often very good at collecting it, but to, as it were, act on it in choosing a correct path or a correct policy, their track record is actually quite poor. And I think what's very interesting about the invasion is the point that uh, Shashank's made about the security service, the FSB, being responsible for the intelligence assessment of how the Ukrainian people would react. And it looks to me as though, you know, the FSB, which is Petrushev's former service, and, and you know, this is a guy who I had met and, you know, had, and he, he's, he's a hard-nosed, difficult individual. Um, they, they sort of misguided Putin with the intelligence. And I just wonder what role the military intelligence people, the GRU, have played. I mean, I'm sure now the GRU are important, but it looks to me as though they're messing up as well. So the interface between collection of intelligence and the ability to use it immediately for strategy or tactical deployments looks to me very faulty within the Russian system. Perhaps the GRU were too busy touring European cathedrals uh, to, to gather much uh, actionable <laughs> intelligence on Ukraine. Um, Richard, so the new Prime Minister Liz Truss uh, arrived in New York and one of the first things that she did was she announced that her government will match uh, and most likely even exceed uh, the allocation of funds um, that Boris Johnson gave to Ukraine, billions of pounds of support to Zelensky. What, what do you make of that announcement and how and she's clearly trying to set out her stall as, as being extremely pro-Ukraine um, and, and perhaps trying to, to settle uh, Ukrainians' nerves at having lost such a strong ally in Boris Johnson? Yeah, well, I think Boris had become something of a totemic figure for the Ukrainians because he was so prominent right from the start of the conflict and obviously took the rather extraordinary step from a security point of view of going to Ukraine early on. And that was, you know, quite a risky thing to do given Russian targeting. Um, so I think Liz Truss has been right from the word go very clear that there won't be any break in step, as it were, um, for the UK's position of a strong supporter of Ukraine. And I think she straight away, before New York, she pledged a further 2.4 billion uh, in funding. And I mean, it's clear that I think the government's intention is to add to that in due course. I think the problem now is, you know, the money's there, but um, the, the sort of inventory of a kit that can be given to the Ukrainians is more problematic. For example, um, in particular howitzer that the Ukrainians are using, I gather the shells are in very short supply. Um, and, you know, the manufacturing lines can't necessarily keep up with the rate of fire. I mean, apparently the Ukrainians are using up to between five and 6,000 rounds a day, which is pretty extraordinary if you think about it. So there is a real problem of logistics and supply and international inventories of certain weapons are running down. And I think the UK has already given a lot of its spare kit and, uh, you know, money now 
is then how do you get the right kit? So it's not straightforward. And that clearly, I think, needs to be some sort of coordination um, amongst individual nations. It can't really be a NATO initiative, uh, you know, in, in, in resupplying the Ukrainians. Sounds like we need to keep a pretty close eye on, on the details to come. But merely by announcing that, she is setting out her position as being 100% behind the government of uh, President Zelensky. Um, I don't know if you happened to catch yesterday morning, Sergei Markov was discussing Putin's threat of all-out nuclear war. Uh, while he said, look, Russia does not want everyone to die, he did say, yes, Putin means that he would launch uh, nuclear strikes on London if Russia uh, was threatened with attack. I mean, what do you make of that? And um, surely uh, all of the Russian citizens of Billionaires Row in London and, uh, and Knightsbridge would also probably be pretty upset with uh, nuclear strikes on London, surely. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think Markov is known for this very sort of exaggerated, threatening position that he takes as a spokesman. I Personally, I don't think I would take that particularly seriously. It's bluster. Um, there's another commentator, you know, Popov, um, who is pro-Putin but takes a much more reduced and more sensible position. I, I think... The nuclear threat is serious, and we have to take it seriously, but I think that the threat is very much in theatre uh, and not international. And what I mean by that is, you know, the danger that the Russians would use a tactical nuclear weapon uh, within Ukraine uh, in, in, in terms of, you know, trying to give themselves advantage in a conflict where they're going, things are going really, really badly for them. Um, and this latest development, you know, of the supposed absorption after um, referendums or votes, um, you know, that they would take take bits of Ukraine into Russian territory, so it changes the station, the, the 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 status, and it becomes part of Russia. Yeah, I think you know, I I think this it, it indicates that things are going really badly for Putin. I mean, I mean, in a way, it's a sign of weakness. Um, but I think that the local threat of deployment of a nuclear weapon is probably pretty serious, but the cost to Russia if they were to do that, I think it's going to be massively high uh, in, 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 in terms of its international credibility, its relationship with countries like India and China. I mean, I tend really to think that the Russians will avoid taking that step, although, of course, they will threaten. And the whole process of um, deterrence, you know, uh, is 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 uncertainty. You're not quite sure what the other side is going to do if they have the capability to do something really terrible, which the Russians do. Right. You say it's bluster, but bluster has a purpose, does it not? It's intended um, and, and designed to create panic and to, to frighten us off and to, to, to get us to want to change our position. But the UK uh, is potentially a target uh, in this conflict, given that we have been extremely strong backers uh, of the Ukrainians. Is that a status that you think the government uh, and perhaps the British public at large will be comfortable with continuing to have? Or, or do you think that the British stomach 
for putting it th- this country on the map, on the radar or, of Russia and getting drawn into this war is something that might cause let's trust problems? I don't think so yet. I mean, I think the British position is sustainable, um, particularly <clears throat> if we're not directly involved with our own troops in the conflict in Ukraine. Um, the idea of a nuclear attack on London, I mean, you're talking, you're not talking about a nuclear attack on London, you're effectively talking about a global war. And bear in mind that Europe still sits under the American nuclear umbrella. And, you know, what Putin is talking about in making, or, or some of his spokesmen making threats about a nuclear attack on the UK is, uh, you know, the obliteration of Moscow as well. So, I, I mean, I think in a way that's rather silly. Um, but I, I, I mean, it's, and it's designed to sort of whip up a certain political sector in the UK who will start to question the UK's Ukrainian policy. And Shashank, what tell us what you know about the UK's nuclear defence capabilities. I, I mean, is it within our capability to, if there was an incoming nuclear strike sent over from Russia, would we have the ability to defend ourselves? Could we shoot it out of the sky? What could we do in, in that event? As far as I'm aware, the United Kingdom has no Uh, effective strategic national ballistic missile defence capability of its own. But of course, um, NATO as an alliance does have some missile defence capability that is largely reliant on a system of uh, radars based across alliance territory, ostensibly directed at rogue states like Iran and North Korea. But in practice, it would have some limited utility in detecting Russian launches. I say limited because, of course, the the, the transpolar routes of Russian ICBMs are, are very different to the route that a Iranian missile would take, and therefore the radars are arrayed differently. And the interception systems are largely dependent on um, American Aegis missile defence systems aboard their US Navy destroyers, which are um, which have the capability of intercepting things mid-course, which means as they as they are as they go in space. But this, you know, I don't want to make let leave anyone under illusions. Uh, this is not a capability that can intercept a strategic launch at scale. Uh, even America does not have that capability, however much it pretends it does because, you know, the the number of interceptors you need per missile uh, are are so great that you can overwhelm a system very easily. Um, And, of course, in the modern age, Russia has a great number of intermediate-range systems, including those launched from ships that can fly below radar horizons, give very little warning times. Um, And so, by and large, nuclear defence does not result on... uh, Nuclear defence does not work on the basis of traditional point defence. It works on the basis of deterrence and punishment after the fact. Uh, and that's really been the case since the 1960s. Uh, and, and, and the UK uh, is in that similar predicament to most. Um, my last question to you, Shashank, is uh, is a military one. A few months ago, closer to the start of the invasion, we were talking about Ukrainian mud and how the Russians were going to try to advance as quickly as possible before the, the rising temperatures made their, the movement of their tanks. And for other reasons, 
difficult now that we are heading towards the end of the year we are closing in on autumn the temperature is going to get colder soldiers are going to be stuck outside in the freezing cold what do you think is going to happen in the months ahead what's the lay of the land uh in in terms of the the battles that are going to be fought between the ukrainians and the russians and what do you think we should watch out for in particular Well, mud does not care about your nationality, and so it's important to remember that it affects both sides. And indeed, as the Ukrainians move to an offensive phase in their campaign, uh, pushing into Luhansk province, as I said earlier, looking for opportunities to exploit at other weak points that may develop along the front lines, they too will be quite constrained by mud, because their their armoured vehicles will also struggle off-road. And indeed, the more you confine yourself to road, the more vulnerable you are to ambush and to being struck by pre-sighted artillery. For example, artillery that has been positioned so that it can accurately target a, a, a very you know a particular stretch of road or path that is a choke point. The Ukrainians will have to factor that in, and their own offensive operations may slow down a little bit by necessity. Having said that, it's important to remember that this is their home. This is their territory. They know it. Uh, In the Russian case, you're getting people who are fighting here from the Eastern Military District in Russia. Do you you know, we know the Eastern Military District, that stretches all the way to Vladivostok. They're pretty far from home. They're under some pretty miserable conditions. And in some cases, they're trapped in some situations that are very nasty. If you look, for example, at Russian forces around Kherson City and in Kherson province to the west of the river, they can't get their resupplies very easily because the bridges are being constantly blown up by Ukrainian missiles. So I would say the Russians are going to have the worst winter of the two sides. It's also important to remember that the Ukrainians have some extremely good precision strike capability, which is taking out Russian command posts, depots, garrisons, bases. That's going to continue. That's not going to stop over the winter months. That campaign of precise attrition of strikes, what we call strikes in depth, because they're far behind the ostensible front lines, is going to continue to exact a very fierce toll on the Russian forces. That's not going to slow down. And I think the Ukrainians will stay calm and they'll continue doing what they're doing, which is building up their reserve brigades, getting training in in our country, the United Kingdom, and and, and, uh, weapons from a number of countries, looking forward to the uh, spring, where I think they will come out with a potential advantage to use if they can find similar opportunities to exploit as they did in Kharkiv. So the winter's going to be tough on both sides, but I think it's going to be a little bit harder on the Russians. And uh, can I add another point? I think that the Ukrainians have a significant, because they're on their own territory, intelligence advantage. So they will have sources behind and inside Russian lines, and we've already seen they have the capability to deploy special forces right into Crimea. So they will start to do more of that, which will, of course, increase Russians' feeling of vulnerability. It's going to be a tough winter for them. Um, Tough for the Ukrainians too, but I think the overall advantage will lie on the Ukrainian side. Absolutely fascinating. I think that's a great note to end on. I've learned so much from this conversation from the two of you. I'm super, super grateful uh, for you both joining us. It was so, so interesting. No problem at all. My pleasure. Shashank, I've really enjoyed listening to you. It's been great. That's all for this episode of One Decision. We drop new episodes every Thursday. Don't forget to subscribe so you never have to miss an episode. From me and the team, thanks for listening and see you next time.